Good morning. You can have a seat. That song uh, expresses what I believe we need to do uh, more frequently than we choose to. And that is to take time and to make the choice to speak the truth of what God says into our own life, into the situations that we experience. I had to do this last night in the shower of all places where I do most of my uh, quality thinking uh, and and my creative time in my brain. Uh, I had to remind myself of what God says is true about me, uh, my life, because it's easy to forget that. It's easy to live in a different reality, and it's easy to believe things that aren't true um, about who I am, about uh, what my life is, what, uh, about what God expects of me. And so thanks to Mies for leading us in that uh, and reminding, of that with the, reminding us of that this morning with that song. My name is Bobby. I'm one of the pastors here at Soma Northwest. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, we are finishing up this morning our uh, spiritual formation series on the practice of justice being people that do justice and practice reconciliation with each other. And as we have done over the last few weeks, before we dive into our teaching time and get into our scriptures, we take a couple of minutes and we hear from some of you about what your experience has been, what you're learning, what the Lord has been teaching uh, you through this series and even um, as we have journeyed through this outside of the teaching times on Sunday morning. So I want to invite uh, Robert and Andrea Corbido uh, to come up. Uh, the Corbidos are members here at Soma Northwest. They've been a part of uh, our body for two or three years now, something uh, along those lines. Um, and they have also uh, taken part over the last year, year and a half in a uh, focus group, a discussion group um, that Brian and Tara Gornick have led uh, with different folks here in our, in our church body, uh, talking and discussing and sharing about um, this idea of being people of justice and reconciliation. And a lot of that has been just coming to terms and coming to grips with our own assumptions, our own experiences and backgrounds. And so I've just asked the Corbidos to share a little bit about what their experience has been uh, as being a part of that group, some of the things that they have learned um, and taken with them, some of the things that they have been challenged with. And so, guys, that's where I I wanted to start this morning is just um, as you think about uh, your experience with the this group, um, the discussion, and even just as it has related to what we've talked about here on Sunday mornings over the last few weeks. Uh, just tell us, what has your experience been? How have you been challenged? What are some of the assumptions that you've carried with, uh, carried yourself over the, over the last few years, and even maybe longer than that, uh, that the Lord has really been addressing with you? Um, but for me personally, um, I believe that I could never really fully claim my race or culture because I'm biracial. Um, I've had so many experiences where I've been in um, with Caucasian people and I clearly don't fit in or with Filipino people. And uh, it's quick to point out that I'm only half Filipino. And, uh, you know, that's, that's very hard on me. Um, and I, I've learned that I, I, get, I can claim my own race and culture. Um, that's been a big thing I've been challenged with this over this past year. Um, I, I can um, define who I am. Uh, and it doesn't change me. And uh, I can claim my identity in Christ as well. And, and that's just something I get to choose and not um, have someone else identify for me who I am. So so I grew up in a white family where it was you were sort of taught, like, treat everybody the same. That's the gold standard is to treat everyone the same. And to, to point out that someone is different would be rude or bad in some way. And I think one thing that um, I've learned over the course of these discussions is that um, talking about people's differences can actually be really positive. Obviously, there are super negative ways that you could point out that someone is different. But I've found in interactions with people that a lot of people really appreciate having their differences acknowledged and affirmed. And so having that conversation of like, hey, 
I see that you're the minority in this situation. I care about that. What is that like for you? How can I support you in that? Um, can actually be really positive and not, in, in a lot of circumstances, I've been in not taken negatively at all. So that's been something that I've learned and grown in. Um, and I think just I've been on a, a journey over the last several years of really having my eyes open to how advantaged I am, right? Because I don't walk around in my day-to-day -day life feeling like I have some type of advantage in this world because I was born with this skin color. Um, life's hard, and I feel like most of us feel like we're just hanging on most of the time, right? Um, and so the thing is, when we start to talk about justice, when you're in a group that is used to having more power, justice feels like oppression. And I think that's why it can be so hard for white people to engage in these conversations, because if we've always had too much, then getting to justice means I'm going to have less, another group's going to have more, and that can feel really hard. Um, and so I think to even have these conversations, the baseline is really acknowledging, getting to a place where the Lord has made it clear to you and acknowledging, like, no, I am advantaged, and that is all, like, that is necessary for us to even begin to talk about what justice is. Um, Andrew, you alluded to this a little bit, but as you guys have just been on your own personal journey through this, as the Lord has been stirring up things in your own life, in your own understanding of who you are, who other people are, how has that changed your relationships and even just your day-to-day -day life? Like, what, what are you... Um, I mean, this is what we're going to dive into a little bit today as we wrap our series up. But wh what do you do with this? What are you trying to do? Uh, maybe even what, what's scary about it? What, what's hard about thinking about moving out into uh, this community in our relationships here and also our broader community here in the city, being people that are people of justice and that practice reconciliation? One thing I've, come, I've recognized that there's a lot of racial, cultural, and economic barriers everywhere and part of me that my um, responsibility is recognizing my role in part of this unjust systems and barriers that are affecting other people um, we all have roles big or large and um, taking responsibility for it and um, I've been more intentional about including race and culture into my conversations and relationships with people um, so that we can celebrate the culture and race um, and Part of one's own identity and it's about breaking down fences and bringing people into experience that um, and to celebrate God's image through all walks of life and um, I've been more vigilant about calling out and questioning things I see throughout the normal day and systems and processes that are unjust or unfair and um, that may be tilted to one way or another so that's just been one challenging thing I've been trying to really press into so so in talking about power um, and recognizing that you're advantaged, um, out there in the world, like people are going to hold on to whatever power and advantage they have, right? Like for some people who don't, for people who don't know Christ, like that might be the only thing keeping their fragile self afloat is this like knowledge of some level of power that they have. Um, but what's amazing here is that we can lay that down here, right? Like we can count everything a loss compared to knowing Christ. So I don't need that power. Like, I'd, I don't need this, this church to fit my cultural preferences. I don't need things to be my way. I don't need my voice to be the loudest. Um, and I can adjust to that and adapt to that because I live in a world where often people like me, our voices are heard the loudest. Um, but I can give that up compared to knowing Christ. Um, and then when I think about practical things, like I think about our marriage, because Robert and I come from different races, very different backgrounds, totally different value systems, um, and the Lord has been moving us both toward him throughout our lives, which is the only way that we can be together and have the unity that we do. And so what I should do for my brothers and sisters of color um, who are different than me is very similar to what I do with my husband. So I engage in the foods and the music of his culture and appreciate that with him and enjoy it and experience it. I listen to the stories of his family and their history and um, really seek to understand their perspective and where they came from um, and how that shapes who they are today. And, and having empathy for situations that I've never personally experienced or walked through, but letting my heart break with them over the things that they've experienced. Um, I think reading is a really easy way to jump into this topic. You know, if you don't feel comfortable talking about it yet, um, reading. So I've been intentionally reading books by people of color over the last several years, and I recently read a book um, with Robert about 
the Filipino immigrant experience in America, which was absolutely gut-wrenching. And it really just shed a lot of light for me on the types of things that his dad walked through as an immigrant and how that shaped his dad and how that shaped Robert and who Robert is today and the values and the fears that he has in his life. Um, and then beyond that, just intentionally seeking people out. I work in a mainly white workplace and um, I see that like people naturally go to people who are like them, right? We all do it. You have something in common, you have something you can talk about and share with them in. The people who went to the same college all like to hang out together and the people who live in the same part of town like to talk about the stuff in that part of town, right? So I have been, I felt really called in my workplace to really um, keep my eye out for those people who are not having an affinity with someone and who are not being sought out by others and to seek them out, to talk to them, to tell them I'm glad they're here, to get to know them, to ask them questions about themselves um, and the things that they like, the things that are important to them um, so that they can feel that love and feel affirmed in who they are um, and not feel like the outsider. Thank you guys for sharing this morning. And uh, just before you all sit down, um, I'd just like to, to, to pray for the Corbitos as they walk through this uh, in their marriage and, um, and just some of these things that they've laid out that they're pursuing. And also uh, just ask God to bless this time as we as a church collectively begin to think about what are the next steps for us and how do we move out uh, of this series, not saying, well, we talked about that and now we can move on. But what does this do to change our lives um, and the way that we relate to each other and to our community that we live in? So join me in prayer. Lord, we're, we're thankful for your grace and your mercy, and we recognize that we are people who, um, who are experiencing the realities of life, like Andrea mentioned, every single day. And life is hard. Life is tough. There are so many things that we um, are, are experiencing um, some are self-inflicted wounds and others are, are the hurts and the wounds that other people inflict on us, um, not to mention just the difficulties of life and the seasons of life that some of us are in. As we talk about being a people of justice and, and laying down our rights so that we can serve and, and um, celebrate other people, uh, that seems like another burden and another weight and something that is too heavy for us to bear, and um, I want to affirm this morning that it is. Uh, it is too heavy, and I'm thankful that you have not left us alone to bear it alone, um, but that you've given us your spirit, you've given us your word, you've given us the transforming power of the gospel. And I pray for Robert and Andrea, and I pray that uh, their marriage would reflect the, uh, the reconciliation that they have both personally found in the gospel, um, that as they pursue each other, uh, as they forgive each other, as they uh, serve each other and lay their lives down for each other, that um, that would reflect the gospel, that it would point people in their lives um, here in this church body, in their neighborhood, in their places of work, um, that they would be a city on a hill, uh, that they would be a light shining in those places. And I pray for us as a community, as we, as we listen to your word here this morning, as we talk about um, what that means in our lives and, and how you want to work in and through us uh, as a church body, I pray that you would cover us with your grace, and I pray that we would be empowered as we leave this place to be people of peace and reconciliation as we move into the spheres of influence that you have placed us in, um, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools. Um, God, we ask this of you, and we, we humbly wait for it to receive it from your good and gracious hand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. Um, so for some of us this morning, um, as we come to the end of this series, uh, this has been a very eye-opening series. Uh, for some of us, this has caused us to uh, dig into places in our own life, experiences, assumptions, um, our upbringings and, and what we've come to believe about how to be in this world and how this world works. For some of us, it's been very eye-opening. It's, it's uncovered a lot, and that's produced a lot of zeal in us. Uh, we recognize 
that um, there's work to be done. We're seeing specific things in our own sphere of influence that we can go after, and we're ready to move in that direction, and that's a good thing. But for others of us, and and I think for for some of our minorities in particular, as I've talked to you, um, you're tired, (laughs) and you're fatigued, um, because this isn't just a conversation. This is your life, um, and this is your experience, and I know uh, that some of the things that we've taught, some of the things that we've shared uh, over the course of the last month uh, have been triggering um, and have brought up some past experiences that uh, you're having to deal with all over again and some questions, and, and we recognize that, and, and that's also okay, um, and that's part of life. Um, our hope is that as we have talked, as we have shared, as we have uh, gone through some of the resources uh, that we've put together for this series, as we've discussed this in our MCs and discipleship groups and in other contexts, our hope has been that we have been able to move away when we talk about justice and reconciliation, that we've been able to move our conversation and our understanding away from partisan political talking points and cultural narratives, and that we have been able to root what we have been talking about in the truth of Scripture. That's why we've been very intentional each and every week to dig into God's Word, to look at the Scripture, to see that there is, uh, that this is a theme, a prominent, prevalent theme throughout all of Scripture, and we're going to continue to do that this morning. What we've also seen and what we hope has been communicated from up front is that this is not an out there issue. This is not just for people out in the world, but this is an in here issue. Because as we've heard right here and as we we saw, we are a body of people who are different. We come from different backgrounds. We look differently. We, We have different cultures. We speak differently. We have different experiences and upbringings, and that is a good thing because it reflects who God is. God is not colorblind. God created different colors because it matters to him, because it shows us something about him, and we celebrate that, and we recognize that, but we also recognize that as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, who have experienced the life-transforming work of the gospel, that we are first and foremost brothers and sisters in God's family, that we call God Father, that Jesus is our brother, that we are a family, that the things that separate us and have the potential to separate us have been broken down because of the reconciliation of the gospel. And so we of all people should be people who practice that in our horizontal relationships, that the vertical relationship and that reality that we have with God should permeate the relationships that we have with each other. Injustice and racism is just as much our problem as it is anybody else's problem, things that we have to work through, that we have to be aware of. I was reading this week, and I wanted to read this paragraph that I came across and comment on it before we get into our text this morning. In the Christian tradition, justice has often been seen as something far removed from Jesus' life and teaching. Influential theologian Reinhold Niebuhr famously wrote of Jesus providing our ideals the impossible possibility of loving our neighbors and forgiving 70 times 7. However, When we enter the quote-unquote real world of politics and balancing the egos of that political process necessarily involves the best we can hope for is a kind of rough justice. This kind of justice finds its source not in the message of Jesus, but in the common sense of power struggles, coercion, and necessary violence and punishment. As I read that this week, a couple of things jumped out to me. I think for far too long, 
evangelical Christians, which we would be in that stream in this country, have settled for the argument, well, this is just how the world is. So that's the rough justice that this author was talking about. That's just how the world is, so we've got to play by the rules of the world. That's just how the world is, so we have to look to political parties and their platforms to define for us what's good and what's just and what's right for our country. This is just the world that we live in, so we hop on social media or turn the TV on to hear how we should think about that world and about how we interact in this world. It's time we reject that kind of thinking. It's time we as God's people begin to see that God is not playing by the world's rules, that God has a different set of rules. Maybe some of you watched the show on NBC, The Good Place. I was talking to Pastor Nate this morning, and maybe you've seen this, the trolley problem, the train problem that they talk about on this. And too often, we try to get God on our train and say, God, will you direct our train when God is like, no, I'm on a train on a completely different track. The way God sees this world, the way, what he intends for this world is completely outside of what we often think of as being good and right and what this world needs. The scriptures, and that's why we've been rooted in the scriptures during this series, paint a true picture of what reality really is, of what is true about this world, that we are sinful people separated from God, that this world is broken because it is experiencing the effects of, of the fall and of sin, that there are dark spiritual powers at work in this world who have a different agenda than what God says is good. But the scriptures not only tell us of what reality is, the scriptures give us a vision of what can be and what will be. But too often, we look at what God says will happen as something that only will happen when Jesus returns. That we just kind of throw our hands up and say, well, this is how it's going to be until Jesus returns. And in part, that's true. But also, as we're going to see this morning, God tells us what can be in the here and the now. And what he expects us to be about in the here and the now. That the weapons of truth, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, justice, mercy, and love are powerful weapons. They're not the weapons of this world because we don't wage war against this world against the flesh and the blood, as Paul says. That those weapons, when picked up by the people of God, are used by the Spirit of God to bring about transformation, to bring about the reality that God intended for this world, the reality that God says we can experience in part now, and the reality that one day we will experience in full when Jesus comes back to rule and to reign. And so this morning, we have to ask ourselves, are we cynical? Are we jaded? When we talk about justice, when we talk about mercy, when we talk about reconciliation, when we talk about breaking down the barriers that exist between us, are we cynical? It's just how the world is, man. It's just how life is. This is just the hand that we've been dealt. It's too big of an issue. Or will we choose to believe that this is what God says can happen? That people can be reconciled. That people who have been pushed down and oppressed can be made whole. That we as a church, though small in number here, are part of a bigger global church that God wants to use in this world to communicate the truth about who he is and to be about his business in our everyday lives. Another thing, if we are people, families, 
and a church that does justice and pursues reconciliation, then we are in lockstep with Jesus Christ. We are in lockstep with what Jesus came to do in the way that he came to do it. Following Jesus, as we have seen, and this is why we are talking about doing justice and pursuing reconciliation as a spiritual discipline or a a spiritual formation practice because it involves being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. We cannot claim to be followers of Jesus if we do not do the things that Jesus did. If we don't make our lives look like and choose, make the choices in our lives to live and to do and to minister as Jesus did when he was here on earth. And so this morning, I want to put a cap on this series by reminding us of something that Jesus came to announce the presence of God's kingdom, that God's kingdom was here that it was now, that it could be experienced in a real and powerful way. And this is something that we have touched on up to this point in our series in the book of Exodus and also throughout this month, that when kingdom people participate in justice and reconciliation, we reveal the truth about God to a watching world. When we as God's people commit to be people of justice and reconciliation, we are communicating something true to the rest of the world about the God we worship, the God that we say is above every other God. And we're going to look at that this morning. So would you turn with me to Luke chapter 4? Luke chapter 4. Coming to Luke chapter 4, we find Jesus beginning his ministry in his hometown. That Jesus steps on the scene in the city of Nazareth. And it's on the Sabbath day, and we find Jesus in the synagogue. As was his custom to do, Jesus would show up in the synagogue because synagogues in that day were like community centers. There were a lot of things going on in the synagogue. It was like the hub of of the Jewish uh, uh, cities and towns that these synagogues were located in. Lots of things going on, all kinds of activities. And it was common for teachers, for rabbis, to show up and to teach in these public spaces for the edification and encouragement of those folks who were around. And so what we see is Jesus coming to Naz- in Nazareth, coming to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and Jesus rolls up into the synagogue and grabs a scroll from the book of Isaiah and reads the following words to the people who were there. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus reads this scroll written by the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before about the Messiah, the the deliverer. The one that God had promised would come and set his people free. The one sent from God through the people of Israel had longed for, had waited for, had watched for. Jesus reads these words, what this Messiah will do, what his ministry will be like, what he will be about, and what happens. He reads these words All eyes are focused on him, and Luke tells us he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And if you remember from our study through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, when a teacher in that day would teach and then sit down to explain, what was he doing? He was claiming authority. He was saying, this is what is true. 
What I'm about ready to say is true, and I'm speaking it with authority, and I'm speaking it with the authority of God. And look at what Jesus says. He sits down and he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. If you were there that day, that would have been shocking. Like you would have you would have been knocked back a little bit. Because what Jesus was claiming as he read those words from Isaiah and then said, today, what I have just read is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. I am the one sent from God that you have looked for, longed for, waited for. I am here to do the work of God that God has promised you hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before. This is how Jesus launched his ministry. This is what Jesus said at the beginning how he was going to be about the work of God, how he was coming to be the Messiah for the people of God that they had waited for, that they had longed for, that they had looked for. Jesus, this is Jesus' manifesto here, borrowing the words of Isaiah, saying, I have come to put right what is wrong in this world, to restore creation to how God intended it to be. This is Jesus from the get-go saying, this is why I'm here. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm going to be about because this is what matters to God. This is what my Father has sent me to do. And as we read through the Gospels, and as we look at the life of Jesus, what we will see is that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets, fulfilled these words from Isaiah, by reconciling humanity to God, humanity with itself, and humanity to this world. This is what Jesus came to do, and this is how he did it. He proclaimed the good news of the kingdom, that life with God under the rule of God is available, that it's not something we have to wait for until we die or until Jesus comes back, that life with God under the rule of God a different kind of life, the kind of life that God intended us to live with him under his rule is available now. And that life is a life of freedom. That life is a life of healing and provision. And it's not in just some spiritualized sense. Jesus came to proclaim the good news of the kingdom in real life, in real relationships, in real experience, in real time. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. And I just want us to see this. These two chapters, Matthew chapters 8 and 9, are a microcosm of Jesus' ministry. In two chapters, we see a summary of what Jesus did during his public ministry here on this earth. Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 8 in verses 1 through 4, I'm not going to read through all this. I just want to skim down with this, and I want you to look at me, look with me through the different sections, the different passages of these two chapters. In verses 1 through 4 of Matthew chapter 8, we see Jesus heal a man with leprosy. A leper in that day was a social outcast. He was kicked outside of the city. He couldn't worship. Even if he loved God and wanted to worship God with all of his heart, his soul, his mind, his strength, he was not allowed to come into the temple and worship God with everybody else. He was an outcast. Jesus heals this man and then tells him, go to the priest and show yourself. Go to the priest. I am healing you, not only physically, but now you go and you worship. You worship with the rest of God's people in God's house. In verses 5 through 13, we see Jesus and this centurion, this Roman centurion who was a Gentile, who was considered by the Jewish people a dog and another social outcast. He was a religious outcast. Jesus, in his interaction with this man, marvels at his faith. Jesus affirms his faith, and he uses this opportunity to proclaim spiritual equality 
for someone of a different race and a different culture. This was a coup in this day. What Jesus said to this man, that he would stand as an equal, that he would sit as an equal at God's table, was unheard of in Jewish teaching at that day, during that day. Verses 14 through 17 of chapter 8. Jesus healed people. Look at these words specifically. And when Jesus entered into Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirit with a word and healed all who were sick. And look at what Matthew writes here. Matthew's commentary in verse 17. This was, fulfill, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. That's from Isaiah chapter 53. The passage that we so often read at Easter time, about the death of Jesus, about the spiritual sickness and illness that Jesus bore on our behalf so that we could experience life with God. And Matthew uses that same verse to talk about the literal, physical healing and casting out of demons that Jesus performed here, saying that he fulfilled it in this way too. He fulfilled those words of Isaiah. In verses 28 through 34, again, we see Jesus casting out demons from men living in a graveyard apart from society. They couldn't function. They weren't accepted. They couldn't live. And Jesus casts those demons out and heals them so they can experience life again. They can experience community again. They can experience the healing that God provides Moving on into chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, this famous story of Jesus healing the paralytic that was lowered down through the roof. And what do we know about this day and time is that people with physical diseases, disformities, disabilities, that culturally they were considered outcasts because people thought that God had made them like that because he was judging them. Because they had done something to offend God. Their parents had done something to offend God. And this was God's curse on them. And what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven. He offers the forgiveness and the reconciliation of God to a man who was thought not to have ever been able to experience that. Because God had judged him. God had cast him out. And then what does he do? He heals that man. He heals him physically as well. In verses 9 through 13, Jesus called a man who was another second-class citizen, Matthew, a tax collector, somebody who was spit upon, somebody who was seen as being a traitor to the Jews because he collected taxes for, for the Romans, they're occupiers. Jesus calls a second-class citizen to come and follow him, to be a close friend of his, to do the work, to apprentice at Jesus' feet. And then what does Jesus do? He goes over to Matthew's house, and he hangs out with all of Matthew's rowdy friends. He eats with them. He drinks with them. He spends time with them. And the religious leaders are like, how could you do this? How could you be about this? If you were the Messiah... You wouldn't act this way. You wouldn't spend time with these people. In verses 18 through 22, Jesus healed a woman who had a bleeding condition. She was considered unclean by Jewish ceremonial laws. She couldn't enter the temple. She couldn't worship and offer sacrifices and be with people as they worship God. Jesus heals her. These two chapters, we see Jesus' ministry. He's healing the sick and disabled. He's inviting racial and social outcasts to experience his power. He's speaking with, touching, eating with, spending time with people considered unclean and second class. He's forgiving sins. He's challenging and confronting religious leaders who marginalize these people, who set up rules and boundaries to separate a class system, the nature of Jesus' ministry, this is important, is in line 
is in lockstep with what God expected from Old Testament Israel. What Jesus is doing here is continuing and fulfilling God's healing and restorative work. The religious folks were constantly challenging Jesus on this. Constantly challenging him. His authority. You could never be sent from God. You hang out with sinners. You hang out with people that none of the Jews should hang out with. You hang out with Gentiles, those dogs, those second-class citizens. The Messiah wouldn't do this. If you were really sent from God, you wouldn't do this. But the thing that Jesus continues to bring them back to is that, yes, it is exactly because I am sent by God. It is exactly because I am God that I do this, that I minister to this to these people, that this is the nature of my work here on earth. You remember in Matthew chapter 23, it's a whole chapter of woes where Jesus is, is pronouncing curses on, on these religious leaders for how they, they think and, and how they, they oppress people and just how they move people away from God and cause people to stumble as they're pursuing God. And he, Jesus in Matthew 23 says to them, woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. What Jesus is saying here is that God's expectation for his people written in the law is that they be people, yes, who sacrifice and tithe and worship him and at the same time they worship him by being people of justice and mercy. And Jesus pronounces curses on those folks who should have been leading the people in this way but who were not. Part of Israel's vocation what God had called them to be and do in the world was to enact a social justice, a merciful way of living in their own society, not just for their own benefit, but so they could reveal the true character of God to the rest of the nations of the world. That was, it. God called Israel, we see, we've seen this in Exodus, God called Israel out of Egypt, not to just a freedom where they got to decide how they lived and what their way of being in this world should be. He called them out of slavery and bondage and oppression in Egypt, and he called them to himself, to be his people, to represent him in this world, so that all of the nations of the world would know that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was the one true God. And what we see Jesus doing during his time on earth, in his public ministry, the way that Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom, was that Jesus Christ continued on what God had commanded Israel to do, and he fulfilled that. Does this make sense? Do you see where I'm going here? Am I? Jesus Christ came to do what Israel could not do. Jesus Christ came to announce to the world that God is here, that God is real, that God in the God, Yahweh of Israel, there is life as it was meant to be lived, as God intended it to be lived. Both demonstrating in his ministry the transforming power of the gospel is both the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, making us right with God, and the good news of the gospel is life experienced in love, in mercy, and in justice towards our neighbors. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. This is our life, and this is our expectation. This is what God expects from his church, to become like Jesus and to do 
what Jesus did. To be a people who in our life and in our way of being in this world announce the good news of the kingdom of God. That when people see us and experience us, that they will know what God is like and that they will know that life is found in him. So we can't be people who just think about justice and reconciliation. We can't be people who just talk about justice and reconciliation and care about it. We have to be a people that do justice and practice reconciliation. And so this morning as we close our series, I want to give us some help in that way. This is pastoral counsel. This is not, thus saith the Lord, you have to do all these things. But as I've sat in this, as I've talked to you, as I've prayed through this, here are some things that I want to offer you. Because I've just, I've had conversations with you, many of you this week, who say, yes, I care about this. I see this. I see this from the scriptures. Help me. <laughs> How? How do we do this? What steps can I take? How can we as a people move out? How can we as a people practice this here and move out into our world as people of peace? For many of us, the, spirits, the Spirit has pricked our hearts. We have this urge to do something. We want to make a big splash we want to we want to stare down racism and injustice and all the isms. We want to stare it in the face. We want to bring it to its knees. But if we're honest, none of us are in a position to do that. <laughs> none of us by ourselves can answer and take on the the the, the centuries and generations of sin and brokenness and injustice in this world. But what we can do we can show up every day where God has placed us and the relationships that God has given us and the part of this city in which we live and the responsibilities and the roles that we have. If you're feeling overwhelmed, it's okay. This is an overwhelming thing. Uh, if you're scared and fearful about encountering resistance and opposition, you should be, because it's going to be there. When we're doing the things of God, we will experience resistance. We will experience opposition. We will be persecuted. But we have to also recognize our place and what we can do now, what you can do now, where you can start now. And so to close our time, I want to give you this framework called the ARC of racial justice, and I've gotten this from the book The Color of Compromise by a man named Jamar Tisby, very helpful. ARC stands for awareness. ARC stands for responsibilities. ARC stands, or excuse me, relationships, and ARC stands for commitment. And so I want to walk through each of those with some practicals. What is our next step? What does this look like for you, for me? The first is awareness. Some of us need to start here, as Andrea mentioned. Some of us just need to learn. We need to learn as we uh, listened to Pastor Nate and Deb talk uh, a couple weeks ago. We need to know the city that we live in. We need to know the racial history of our city. We need to know why people are separated along the lines in which they're separated. We need to know what, what the experiences of people have been in our, our city. We need to read and learn about that history. And if you think about it, history is about context. And the more aware of history we are, the more we will be able to place people and events and movements that have happened in our city and in our country and in our world in the grand scheme of what God is doing. What God has done in is through his church. And also, it helps us recognize where the church has made mistakes, where the church has voluntarily stepped back and not engaged. 
sometimes I get the question, why are we talking about this as a church? Why are we talking about uh, racial issues and cultural issues? Why do we keep bringing this stuff up? Well, it's because the church never has. The church in America has stayed silent for hundreds of years about this issue. They've either been indifferent to persecution, to injustice, to oppression, and in some cases, they've been complicit in it. The church has been very clear on other social issues, abortion, sexuality. We've made ourselves very clear about what we think about that. But we have not stepped in to issues of race and issues of culture. And we've said, well, that's too political. That's for other people to talk about. But guys, if we can't talk about those things, if we can't be people who lead out in our society as people who have experienced reconciliation through the gospel, who can? Why are we trusting other people to talk about this? Why are we trusting other people to lead us in these things when we have the spirit of God and the word of God and the power of God? We have the transformation, the transformative power of the gospel. And so maybe we need to watch some documentaries. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a ton of documentaries that you can watch and just learn. What has our history been? We can read books, like I mentioned, that book, The Color of Compromise. Just charts the American church's response and interaction with racial issues, honestly, ever since slaves first arrived on our shores back in the 1600s. We can learn about the global church and what, is, what God is doing around the world and know that we are not the center of Christianity. We are not the center of Christianity. We are not the center of what God is doing in this world. That we in the American church are the minority in God's global church. So maybe it means you need to diversify your social media feeds. Maybe you need, if you're a white person in here, maybe you need to have more people of color in your feeds to understand what they're saying and their experiences and how they're seeing some of these social issues that are going on in our country. Maybe you need to have people, maybe we all need to have people who have a different political bent than we have to know why people think a certain way, why they, they feel a certain way about realities going on in our country. We need to be aware, and as the people of God, we need to have a curiosity with each other. Do you know people who are different than you? Do you know what their life is? Do you know who they are? Do you know their story? Or are you just assuming? We need to be aware. Secondly, we need to have relationships. If we're honest, most of us in this room have social networks that are homogenous. We hang out with people who look like us, who talk like us, who have the same income that we have, who live in the same part of town that we do, who have a similar background that we have. There's an old maxim that says, you are the sum of the five people you spend the most time around. Think about that. Take a mental inventory right now. Outside of your family, who are the people that you spend the most time around week in and week out? Where are you being challenged in your views? Where are you being challenged that your understanding of life, that your understanding of the scriptures may not be exactly right? Where are you being challenged in these relationships with people who are different than you? who have a different background, who come from a different race and a different culture, who have a different experience of what it means to live in this city. Do you have those relationships? We are, to, and, and, and to be honest, it's hard in this country to have diverse relationships. We, we, it's just hard. But this is where we as the people of God need to make choices and look around this room. There are people who are different right here. We don't have to go out and make a whole big deal of this thing. We could start right here, getting to know people who look different, who live differently, who live in different parts of town, who have different experiences, building those relationships. Regularly eat meals with people who are different from you. Be intentional about conversations. Know who they are. 
Know what their experiences are. What are their hopes? What are their desires? What are their dreams for their life, for their family's life? And these don't always have to be cultural tour guides, you know? Like, help, hey, you're an African-American. Can you just help me understand? And that that is the only thing that's the basis of our relationship. We are real people. We are real people, flesh and blood, human people. We can get to know each other and care about each other and love each other and understand each other's lives. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to go to different places in our city to shop? Are we willing to go to different neighborhoods to to play in parks? Are we willing to play in different sports leagues with kids who look different than our kids and come from a different culture than our kids come from? It will be less convenient. (laughs) It will take some thought. It will take some follow-through. I want to open up the possibility this morning for you. Are you willing to listen to God If he maybe wants you and your family to move to a different part of our city, to be around people who are different. I'm not saying you have to do that, but are you willing to listen and ask God, should I live where I live? Should my kids go to the schools that they go to school, where they go to school? These are questions that should not be off the table for us as the people of God. Awareness, relationships, and then finally, commitment. And this is the most demanding part of pursuing justice and reconciliation. Awareness and relationships. As we become more aware of the realities, the space we live in, as we get to know people, and that those issues of justice and reconciliation aren't just big concepts, but they're people with faces and lives and names that you love. We begin to feel the weight of those things. But is that weight moving us to action in our lives? Does it, is that burden leading us to act? You might say, well, I'm not a racist. Good. But are you anti-racism? <laughs> are, you doing, are you actively doing things to resist segregation and, and, and all kinds of different barriers that our society has put up between us? We're not just concerned about this on an interpersonal level. Well, I have friends that are different from me, and I know people who are different from me, but we also recognize that these things happen at a systemic level and a structural level in the way that our societies and our systems are designed and they operate. So what do we do? What are the commitments that we as the people of God can make? The first thing is we can pray. We can pray regularly because we know that this is a spiritual issue. This is a spiritual issue. Remember what Jesus said about the devil. He has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But what has God come to do? To give life and to give it abundantly. We want abundant life, don't we? We want our our kids to experience real life, don't we? We want our neighborhoods and our schools and our city to experience real, good life, the way God has intended it to be lived, then we better be on our knees praying. We better be on our knees asking and begging God to do this in our city. You can donate. You can give of your resources to organizations and ministries who are pursuing racial justice, who are ministering to racial minorities in our city. These ministries are often underfunded and under-resourced. Think of ministries like Young Life, Safe Families, Exodus, Refugee Ministry. All of these organizations need money. They need resources. You can consider giving to these groups. You can volunteer. You can use your time and your energy to help these efforts to bring people together, to minister to people who are in need, to go across racial and cultural lines and meet those needs. This is something we often don't talk about. You can vote. You can vote. I said it. We talked about it. We said it here. Let me, I want you to hear me say this. No political party, no one political party holds the corner of the market on what this looks like. 
but we have been afforded by our country the power to vote. And we should use that as thoughtful, Christ-following people. That shouldn't be a throwaway. No political party should see us as God's people as an easy vote. We should not be an easy vote. And here's what I mean. We should be asking, what are our candidates' views on racial justice? Do their, do their policies advocate for and help people who are powerless, people who are marginalized? In your neighborhood associations, in your school boards and administration, are you asking these questions? Are you holding people accountable when policies are put into place that don't serve all kids equally? You have a voice in those areas. Are their practices unfair? Are they discriminatory towards racial minorities? Hold them accountable. Hold our elected leaders accountable. You can write letters. You can attend public meetings. You can use your voice to say, as the people of God, we don't approve of this. We don't like this. We aren't going to stand for this. There's a better way. There's always a better way. We can use that power and that privilege that all of us as Americans have been afforded as citizens of this country to vote and to use that voice for good in these bigger and more systemic issues. And lastly, we as a church organizationally have a responsibility. It's really honestly easy for me to get up and talk about these things because I've got the Bible here I can say, you know, look at the scriptures, look at what God says. But as an organization, as Soma Northwest, are we willing to put our money where our mouth is? And what that looks like is that we are a diverse community. We live in a diverse community. And for us to be a church here the way God has called us to be here, this church body needs to reflect the diversity that's in our community. We need to be making choices and efforts as a church to reach people and to welcome people who wouldn't otherwise just walk through these doors naturally. Does that make sense? So as an organization, we want to be committed that people of color are in positions of authority in our church. That we have men who aren't just white men in positions of authority, directing and influencing where our church goes and what we do. We want to provide opportunities for all of you, men, women, people of color, people of different cultures, to come and to lead in our church, to influence our church, to be deacons, to be MC leaders, to be staff. We want to regularly have people of color up here teaching and preaching from their perspective, sharing from what they are learning from the word, what they are seeing God do in and through their lives, through the power of his spirit. We want to partner and we want to platform with platform organizations and ministries in our community and in our city who are working for racial justice. We want to be a church that gives you those opportunities to know these are ministries that needs, need help. These are ministries that you can partner with, that you can give, that you can volunteer with. We want to support those. We want to champion those things, and we want to say, that's good, and we are behind it. In the coming days and weeks and months, I want to encourage us as a church, as we move away from this specific practice series, the tendency for a lot of us will just be to move on to the next thing. We don't want this to be a burden heaped on you. But our desire is this would be a burden willing, willingly shouldered by you. That as you think about these things, as you think about your life and your family's life, that you would ask, what can we do? How can we begin to be more aware? What relationships can we pursue and develop? What commitments can we make with our time and with our money, with our energy, with our resources? to be a people who pursue justice and who practice reconciliation. And it starts right here. And as we come to communion this morning, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in the, in the juice. What we are communicating, what we are participating in is that we are 
part of Jesus Christ. That through faith in his life and his death and his resurrection, that we have been reconciled with God. That we have been made one with Jesus. And by extension, we have been made one with each other. And so as we come, we don't do this as just a ritual or as something that just we check off a box or that gets us in good with God. We do this as a practice. We do this as a, a symbol of a greater reality. And so if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, you have put your faith in Jesus, I invite you to come. I invite you to come and partake as one body who one day will stand around the throne of Jesus with people from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation across this earth, singing holy, 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 proclaiming the goodness and the worthiness of our Savior. Let me pray. God, we give these things to you this morning. We ask for your help. We ask for your power. We ask for your protection. Give us the perseverance to step into this more fully so that your church would be unified, so that we would maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, and that as we, be, as we practice that unity, develop that unity, protect that unity here in this place with these people, that we would move out into this world wherever you have called us to be, as people of hope, as people of perseverance, and as people that others look at and can know the truth about who God is. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.